I know what your favourite book is. What's my favourite book? Everything. My stepmother likes reading books. Baker, she, her, an education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Swap, where a guest and I swap children's fantasy fiction, one classic and one contemporary, and we discuss them. Today, I'm joined by Esther McCallum-Stewart, Professor of Game Studies at Staffordshire University and Chair of Glasgow 2024 Worldcon. Hello. What have you Hello. been to recently? <laughs> All the things, obviously. All the things, All yes. of the things. I've been, so this weekend I've just come back from an all-committee meeting um, of the Glasgow 2024 team. Um, you would have thought, because it's in Glasgow, that we would actually meet in Glasgow, and we usually do, but because the committee need to fly in from literally around the world, we have spent the last four years meeting in a hotel in Heathrow. <laughs> so I was in glamorous Heathrow for the last week. And I was actually doing university work as well. So I had a couple of vivas at the beginning of the week. So I was in a hotel in Heathrow for the week. And that is what I've been up to. And then it was just meetings all weekend. We might have had the odd tipple, um, but not. How odd? Yes. How strange. Uh, <laughs> Um, but we got a lot of things done and it was it was really exciting. And it's it's always really nice to see the team because you walk into the room and you sort of all these stresses that you've got about all the little things that are happening and all the little, you know, concerns everybody's got just get sorted out and everybody sits mm. down and they remember not to be stressed and they remember they like each other and they remember that we've got all this amazing thing to do. So so yeah, so that was that was most of last week and it is back to work this week as normal. And I'm looking at, I was looking at another thesis today. So exciting. Yeah. My job's Yay. Been... Yay. Yay. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds amazing. So like, um, I think one of the things I just think is so amazing about conventions is that it, it they're literally held together often by chewing gum and string. Like when you're behind the scenes or when you've been involved in them, you realise how much of that is the case and so, yeah. like a lot of the time, it's like you know the the um, the metaphor of the swan, like sort of swimming across a pond, and the swan looks majestic and glamorous oh. and beautiful. But yeah, all the paddling underneath, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then at the end of it, you you kind of collapse and go, "Oh my, I I've done all of this work, and now it's yeah. all, the end." Yeah, yeah, and. You know, I mean, I've been working on Glasgow 2024 for eight years, or I will have been by the time of the convention, and it's five days, and then it's just not, yeah, anymore. You know, and and of course we have a little bit on either side, and I'm intending to spend quite a lot of time up there and see my friends and you know enjoy myself, but it there's such a hard stop at the end of it, you know, mm. and I think also. I know we say all the time, oh, we're just volunteers, but the amount of work that goes into trying as far as possible to make it look like a professional event is just mm. astonishing you know and yeah sometimes we manage it and sometimes we don't you know and uh yeah and then the internet becomes uh the internet becomes feisty as a result but we we try really hard we really do so <laughs> yeah yeah i i i think that the world cons i've been to have all been I mean, they've all been European world cons. Mm. One thing I I have not managed to get to an outside of Europe world con, but they are. It's such an impressive, such an impressive event, and mm. yeah, there are, and yet there are always those kind of lost in translation things, things yeah. that I. I mean, the, the example that sticks in my mind was was. Uh, 
Dublin WorldCon and uh, a lot of fans asking whether there was going to be a Regency ball and like thinking back on the history of Ireland. <laughs> There's no Regency balls, no. No. <laughs> no, there wouldn't be a Regency ball. No, and and we've actually had similar discussions about what we're going to do as well because we're definitely going to have dances. Um, but one of our guests is, one of our guests of honour is um, editor Terry Windling. And she's done a lot of stuff around fairy tales. So we're going to have a fairy ball, <gasps> um, which we're sort of trying to work out whether or not we sort of do this kind of salon style. We're not quite sure how we're going to do it yet. So it's all mm. being organised. But we really like the idea of that because it means that we can move beyond Regency dances as well. Because we've got, there's a there's a particular volunteer who's, the, you know, a world expert in these dances. And I, I was actually talking to her uh, in Chicago. I'm trying to remember where it was. It was Chicago. Um, and she said, actually, the opportunity to do non, you know, not the usual, not the usual dances, but teach new ones is really exciting. So yeah. it also, yeah, the, I think the costuming is going to be amazing as well, because sure, you can, you can wear your, your Regency clothing if you want to, but then you can put wings on the back or glitter all over yeah. your face, you know, yeah. <laughs> or little 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 curly horns, you know. <laughs> Why not? So, no, exactly right. I think it's going to be really good. So yeah, I think that yeah, I do think that sounds amazing. Oh, that's fab. So um, we did a bit of a topsy turvy book swap, <laughs> didn't we? Yeah, yeah, which is kind of my fault for being. No. It's for literally ages, well, not. Ages and ages ago, I said I'd really like to do Elle McNichol, and I'd not listened to the start of the series at that point. I hadn't started listening to it, so I didn't realise that it was that it was it was the other way round that I should be picking an old one, and then you were going to compare it with a new one. Um, and then I started listening to it, and then when you asked me, I forgot again. <laughs> <laughs> And it wasn't until after I said the well that I thought, I think I'm just being just very pushy here, but I no, never all sorted no. out. And I really, um, I really, really enjoyed the bucket anyway for all sorts of reasons that I think we Well, can you know to. what, you know, like I, I always think that rules are made to be, if not broken, bent, and to kind of try and make sure that, that things are as inclusive as possible while sticking to principles. So that's what we've done. Make new rules. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, as you said, like the book that I chose is The Boggart by Susan Cooper. Um, and obviously, Susan Cooper is, is better known as the author of the, the Darkest Rising series. Um, and and I, I remember my sister, one of my sisters, Kate, had this book. And I can't remember where we got it from, whether it was whether we got it from a library or not. I have no idea. But anyway, um, I mean, this is what I really liked about this book is it is very much kind of it begins in Scotland, but that's not where it ends up. So mm. I'm going to read the blurb now. Oh, this is withdrawn from University of Brighton Libraries as well. So I thought you might like that. Uh, <laughs> one, of my, one of the old universities that I've worked at. Many exactly. <laughs> Also, you know, because obviously I, I have um, a, a husband who, who works at University of Brighton Library, so I do get of course, yeah. the pick of withdrawn books. So, imagine inheriting an ancient Scottish castle, and then imagine that the castle's inhabitant, or boggart from the mists of time, boards your plane back to the hustle and bustle of a Canadian city. This is exactly what happens to the Volnick family. And the result is a wonderful novel packed with amazing happenings and hilarious complications until the final call of the bagpipes fades to silence over the dark loch. This long-awaited novel from world-famous author Susan Cooper is, by turns, witty, atmospheric and full of techno-wizardry. A brilliant <laughs> no wizardry for children age nine plus. So, yeah. I mean, did you wow. find it an amazing novel full of techno wizardry? Um, so I mean, yes, yes, and it's. A, I thought it's a really interesting book because. So I remember trying to read it when I was younger, but I can't have been that much younger because it's when was it published? Nineteen ninety three. 93 yes yeah. so I was yeah. I was sort of 
at the point where I wasn't really reading children's YA books anymore. Um, but I do remember reading it. And I I know exactly what happened now. And I think we'll probably talk about this a bit later. But my mind bounced off it because it wasn't The Darkest Rising. Mm. It didn't have the same kind of presence. It was about all this modern stuff. It was about these kids. And I didn't like them because they weren't the other kids. They, you know, <laughs> And I remember not not going beyond the first sort of two or three chapters, but going back to it. First of all, I didn't realise that Susan Cooper is still alive. Yeah. She's just timeless. She's, she, I mean, she's speaking at the British Library um, over the, over the, or British Museum, I can't remember which one, over the, over the next few months. And I was just, I was just really surprised and sort of went back and looked at her back catalogue. But I think one of the things that's really interesting in this is that there is a lot of mentioning of, of technology. She's tried really hard to keep up to date with what's going on. And she yeah. talks about things like computers and she talks about trying to. She, it's interesting because, again, without any spoilers, um, some of it relies on a computer, but some of it relies on a phone conversation. Mm. So when the children need to speak to each other, they pick up the phone and they're worrying about how expensive it's going to be. But on the other hand, they're using a computer to send information to each other. So it's really fascinating that the, it's a, it feels, in some ways, it feels very much like a period piece. Mm. But the sections in Scotland and, and also the ones in Toronto, actually, which I don't know, but kind of honourable mention to my colleague, David, who comes from Toronto, um, they feel very, they feel very timeless. Mm. So there's that sort of wonderful, the, the presence of of Cooper's writing is really there. I think it's just that, yeah, mid twenties Esther wasn't, wasn't having anything to do with it, <laughs> but it I, means I get, to, I get to read it now. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's quite an interesting it reminds me of two very distinctly different things, books. One of them is obviously Only You Can Save Mankind by Terry Pratchett. So that that kind of a computer game having um, an impact on everyday life, which I think was very much a feature of a late 80s, early 90s yes. children's fiction. Yeah. But there's also um, the kind of wacky family thing. So like the Bagthorpes by Helen Cresswell, which I just adored. But also in in more kind of modern, um, and not that modern, but Kathy Cassidy's books about uh, her family and the name of which that family I've forgotten, but there's like, you know, the mum and dad are both artists and they're really like slack parents and all of that kind of stuff, that kind of arty parents who are a little bit neglectful and don't always mm. know what their kids are up to Yes, kind of yeah. in a very sort of um, bohemian way. Um, that I sort of, I love both of those things. I would have loved to have belonged to a slightly wacky bohemian family, I think, and I wasn't. I mean, like that's, you know, I'm very lucky I grew up in a very loving family, but I would have liked um, some wacky bohemianness in my, in my life, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think there's quite a lot of children's stories that were written at this at this particular period as well, that there's quite a lot of anxiety about that. I mean, um, there's, something, there's something really specific in here that, that relates to something else that I've been doing recently. Um, but there's this, yeah, are the family, are they family, are the family wacky and neglectful or are they eccentric and charming and allowing their children to be free spirits? And the and the, the line is very fine sometimes. Mm. And I felt there was a lot of affection for this particular family, although they were a bit useless. Yes. Um, and that there was a lot of stuff about parental care, particularly towards the end. Mm with the actually it is all the way through with the character of the psychiatrist who comes in yeah that is a massive callback to a whole load of other anxieties that were happening at the time so I listen to a lot of podcasts because I don't sleep very well so I wake up at night and I listen to a lot um, of podcasts about books which is great um, and I've recently been listening to um, oh, I believe it's either you are good or 
mm, you're wrong about. Oh, yeah, you're wrong <laughs> about. Passed by the same person, but with very different yeah. names. Um, and they do a read through, they do a pandemic read through the Amityville horror. And they talk very much about this kind of anxiety and about this whole positioning of the family as quite neglectful mm. and not very in control, and particularly not very in control of money, which is certainly something that happens in the Boggart. Mm. But also this transference of fear onto a young adolescent, you know, and it's in this case, it's Emily. Mm. Um, and I think what's very funny in this book is that Susan Cooper is having absolutely none of it. So this psychiatrist comes in and says, oh, yes, poltergeist activity is all to do with, you know, young women. And, and pretty much everybody just looks at him like he's an idiot, um, which I just found so refreshing because, yes. it just, you know, poltergeist and the Amityville horror and all that. I think the boys in the Amityville horror, horror. but again, mm. this sort of this focus on this prepubescent child Susan Cooper is just like you know what no that's just creepy and I don't like it and here's a baddie (laughs) and he's wrong and and actually despite the fact that the family are not great in terms of parenting all of them are a bit united in this guy is just a twit (laughs) he's just talking you know he's just talking rubbish and he's He's sidelined in the story as a result. He sort of pops up and is kind of like, oh, dear, I think that it's all this. And then he'll sort of go away for another 50 or so pages and you'll think, thank goodness he's gone. And then he'll be back again. You're like, oh, great, you again. (laughs) What are you doing here? (laughs) I do do like at the beginning, when he is introduced at the beginning, it is in the children's mum's antique shop. Yes. And like, there is a purpose. There's a reason why. She has this antique shop, and it's it all ties up quite nicely at the end with the kind of re repatriation of the boggart, and yes, all, yeah, yeah, it works really, really well. But you tell right away at the beginning he's not very nice. He's not. Is he? He's horrible. Because he tries. To, he tries to buy Emily's writing desk. Yes, you know, and in fact, he does, and and that's a really there's. There's two really early pivotal moments in this book. I wasn't expecting, sorry, Ali, I wasn't expecting you to give me a book that would have me crying within 20 pages. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, because there's a, there is a, a pet death. It is, yeah. and it's really hard. It's just yeah. crikey. And then it's almost immediately followed by this horrible man buying this horrible death, buying this wonderful desk that Emily really wants. And you think, you you sort of got over this. You've got over this very sort of sad moment at the beginning of the book, mm. and then it's immediately followed by a very a, 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 a dislikable villain. And I think when I was reading, I felt actually quite a lot of catharsis. In goodness me, that was quite a shocking thing to happen at the beginning of this book. But this, <laughs> I can hate this guy with impunity now. So it's going to be but, okay. <laughs> but we will come back to this. Because mm. it's a very this story that that thing that happens at the beginning with the death of the old lad Laird and the yeah. death of the dog and Greyfires Bobby, which we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, yes, so yeah, ties up really yeah. nicely. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, I I did like that kind of like he we're allowed to dislike him because he is rude to children. Absolutely. Yes. And I like yes. that so much. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because... And he, he makes assumptions about how children behave, which are yeah. just wrong. And yeah, and yes, go on. Sorry. Yeah, we're agreeing. <laughs> and I do like the fact that the re- they kind of, the children go into the antique shop and like have a little act, a little double act. They're like, hi, we're creepy twins. Yes. <laughs> and that's so funny. Let's go yeah. and let's go and upset mum's customers. <laughs> Which is, yeah, that made me laugh a lot. I thought that was very, very good. But, yeah, that kind of, yeah, there. I think it is quite an interesting book in that it's, here's me kind of trying to go, oh, how do I condense my thesis? But, like, there's there are a number of things that happened at the beginning of the 90s, end of the 80s, and the beginning of the 90s. And one of them was classic story of children going off by themselves and, having adventures and then coming mm-hmm. home for tea, then swapped, that changed because of what ideas in the kind of global north 
about what good parenting was. And there was a load of, what's the word? Oh, my brain. There was a lot of hysteria about around mm. things like uh, kidnapping of children. Yeah. And then there was also moral panics about Satanism. Mm-hmm. and yep. Uh, yep. there was a, that the whole satanic panic thing that happened in North America so including Canada in that and then there was also this idea that being a good parent meant becoming 100% involved in your children's life mm. and like educationally and socially and knowing exactly what your children were doing all of the time and not allowing them to have any kind of interior life that was separate from parents. And that kind of is where this book is. Yeah. yeah. And that that's so interesting because mm-hmm. it was published two years before um, The Golden Compass, Northern Lights. Gosh, yeah. And th- four years before Harry Potter. Mm. And that kind of that when this kind of mania about books that are good for children and like books are somehow porridge or cabbage or something that are good for you. And then parents had to be involved in what was good reading for children. And that kind of responsibility moved away from teachers and librarians into parents and and it, yeah, so it's kind of a, oh, it straddles these two worlds. Yeah. In one yeah. way, it's quite old fashioned for the time it was written in. But on the other hand, it's also quite modern. Mm. And yeah. So and I think, fun. I think there's a really amazing moment, I think, as the sort of first act ends. And the kids say, well, aren't we going to say, aren't we going to stay in Scotland? And this is on the back. So, yeah. And are we going to stay in Scotland? And the parents say, no, we've got to go home now. <laughs> and so they do. And the next chapter is literally that we're now in Toronto. And it it was actually quite unexpected to me as a as a moment. It was obviously a moment of again, first act ends, second act begins. But it was also quite shocking because again, that's not that's not how the expectation is. The yeah. expectation. They will stay where they are and they will forge a life for themselves and it will be very difficult. And then the boggart will, you know, get up to all its japes rather than this. Well, no, actually, we live in this other country and we have to go home and be people. You know, we've, we've had a nice time over here, but we can't really stay. Um, and that is that is brought full circle. But I, I really I actually really like that. It just felt really refreshing in that, again, there is a lot of tension there, and I think Susan Cooper's kind of playing playing out some of these anxieties. But at the same mm. time, yeah, sure, you you really can't live here in this Scottish castle for the rest of your lives. It doesn't have any toilets. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's completely impractical for us to do mm. that. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, I absolutely loved that, and I thought the um, and again, you know, there's a really great mechanism that the that the boggart ends up in. Uh, in Canada, but but then also starts to sort of the mayhem that the boggart causes when whereas in Scotland it's a sort of friendly spirit that sort of bumbles around the lock and you know likes to throw buns on the floor. I mean I think it it, it does something it likes to eat fried breakfasts and it really likes Scottish food. And then it gets to Canada and it gets really, really overwhelmed by everything. There's too much food, there's too much noise, there's too much electricity and it and and it's mayhem that was simply kind of just a bit of again a bit of light-hearted chaos just becomes this a, a really sort of fascinating plot device where it's just all stacking up and you just think it doesn't understand limits and this is a place where limits don't exist as much you know they just they they can't because this place is just so big and it's full, so full of people yeah and the the yeah. point where and um, things like the boggart doesn't like the colour of the traffic lights. <laughs> so, yes, so it messes around with them. <laughs> them. Yeah. And so and then, then, it, and then it had a go about moving the trams because that seemed really fun. And you just think, oh my goodness, you know, this is this isn't gonna end well. Yeah, whereas previously it was and he liked to tease the dog by, you know, sitting on its nose. <laughs> yeah. 
it goes it goes into the into the shop over the loft from the the castle and steals an apple. Yes, <laughs> terribly naughty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think and there's there's a really there's a really fun interchange with the with the kids as a result because the uh the lad who's in Scotland again, I I had so bad at names, I just Tom. can't remember. Tom, thank you. So, you know, Tom is very kind of like, ah yes, you know, we've got to treat the treat the bug up well and maybe leave a bit of milk out for it. And he does anticipate the impending disaster. But perhaps not as much as it as it unfolds, and when it and when it does, everybody is thrown into chaos, you know. And I think again, Tom's very self reliant. He's got his own boat, and everybody's very impressed by that because he's got to get out to the island, and he 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 takes them out on the island, and you know, and then he brings them back, and then whenever they see him, he's always doing something something on his own, you know. He's looking after the mm. shop, or he's he's you know fetching things, and it's very kind of rural. Um, but the family in in Toronto are this unit who just are completely, you know, they're, they're all of them. They're all eating breakfast. They're all six different types of breakfast, five different types of mm. music, you know, loads of things to look at. Everything's happening all the time. So the, there's, there's this sort of this kid who's very, very competent and this family who are just absolutely all over the place. And they're all completely thrown by what happens. And mm. And I think the two twins do work as much as they can towards a resolution but so yeah I did wonder whether the two people who come to some kind of aid who are basically the people who say we think this is this I wonder whether there was a reference to the fact they were old ones mm. there's a there's a very very there's a line in the middle and I thought I think if you're looking for it it's there mm um but it's uh, it's it's a line that's often used about will and mary and it says something like they he, they both often looked as if they were not really concentrating on the real world and had other things on their mind and i thought did she put it in or not like again am i looking too hard no but, i think that's a really good point the 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 other thing that i i found quite interesting was that um obviously boggart's uh, you know, they're, they're most recently being used um, in Harry Potter books. Mm. Um, and I, I did a little bit of research because Boggart, I'm more familiar with Boggarts as being a uh, northwest of England, north of England mm. thing. But they're called, you've got Hobbs, you've got Brownies, and they're all kind of, they're the kind of more household spirit things. Whereas yeah. to me, I'm more expect there's boggarts around Manchester, um, and there's also a place called Boggle Hole, hmm. uh, okay. in North Yorkshire, and so I was quite surprised to find a boggart in a Scottish book, uh, so I did do a little bit of research, and they're more no more called boggle boggles, yeah, in Scotland. But yeah, the brownie brownies are Scottish, um, so it was an interesting thing. So I did wonder where Susan Cooper got hold of this name, um, and um, I don't know. I know she's she has Welsh connections. Mm. I'm not sure what Scottish connections she has, but on the other hand, the Scottish aspect of this book is based around Port Appin. Yeah, and castle stalker yeah both of which i am familiar with um oh. from family holidays mm. many many years ago so it's i think that kind of image of the castle. i think people might not even know a lot of people listening to this podcast might know what castle stalker looks like but they might not but if you i will put a i'll put a picture of it in the or a link to a picture of it in the show notes. It's a very striking yes, image. Yeah. Mm. And you're driving around that part of the loch and you see the castle there and it it's so gothic. So I can see why she might have thought that looks like a great place. Yes, I'd love to make a story like <laughs> yeah, for ghosts <laughs> and boggarts. That just sounds amazing. But also she does she uses other Oh gosh, I can't remember the name. The white lady. Yeah, it's gone. Yeah. No, anyway. I'm 
I'm never going to remember names. Yeah, <laughs> so, there's, there's a white lady ghost person. There is a white lady ghost, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's been is, a long thought, day. I, what I should have done is I should have I should have recorded downstairs next to my toilet because I've got a Scottish mythology um <laughs> poster that's got all of the different the different types of spirits and what they're called and little 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 tiny pictures of them um but i can't remember yeah yeah no, she's yeah so yeah. She, she's obviously done you know she's looked at what might help to get this bogger out mm. um, but i don't know whether you heard my recording with fran dowd about hobbity dick no, I haven't listened to that one. Yeah. yeah. So that that's by KM Briggs, Hobbity Dick. Who um she was a British folklorist, very, very famous. Uh and so her book was almost a little bit too accurate. There was almost a little bit too much in there. There are Grimms, there are ghosts, there's Hobbity Dick, there's various other people, and they're like you know, restricted in their movement because of, you know, folklore. So the grim, you know, grim in the churchyard and all of that, that kind of stuff. But I think there's, you kind of sometimes got to play a little bit fast and loose with, with mythology to, to make mm. it work. But, um, yeah, I did, I, I, I can see the castle in my mind. So I imagine the show. Have you got this at the end of your book? Where did the story come from? Have I got that at the back of the book? It doesn't have a date on it, but it does say where she found, where she got the idea from. No, I don't. No. So Susan Cooper says, my bookshelves have always been full of English, Welsh, Scottish and Irish folk tales, many of which overlap with each other. And for a while I wrote picture books based on some of them with the artist Warwick Hutton, the silver cow, the selkie girl, Tam Lynn. Mm. I always wanted to invent a story about a boggart, a shape, the shape-shifting character in Tales from Scotland and the North of England. Oh. Never decide on where to start. Then one day, I was on holiday in Scotland with my best friend Zoe, driving along the, co- the coast of a loch when we turned around a corner and suddenly I saw a small magical castle alone on an island in the water. Zoe said to me afterwards, you were quiet for such a long time after we saw the castle. I'd been listening to a happy little voice inside my head saying to me, that's where the boggart lives. Yay! <laughs> so it sounds like it was almost exactly like what you described. Mm. Just seeing the castle, knowing that the that the folklore probably wasn't super accurate, but having a bit of a background in it and knowing the north of the north of England stuff mm. and just putting them together. So good for her, you know? Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, but I think I think you're right you know the 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 hyper accuracy could be can be quite difficult sometimes because it just it just takes you too far out mm. uh, yeah but I did I did have a look on my mythology poster downstairs and yeah boggles are on it boggets are not so mm. yeah yeah I mean like I think that it's a bit like you can't say there's there's a Hadrian's wall and like folklore stops <laughs> yes, <laughs> On one side and doesn't go any further. Yeah, I was going to say unseely caught on one side, seely caught on the other. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's a little bit like um, like the Arthurian mythology, which I've been writing about at the moment. Mm -hmm. As like kind of yeah, there's the Welshness of that, but then you've got Arthur's seat in Edinburgh. You've got like. The yeah, round table in, in Winchester, yeah. you can't. It's yeah, it yeah, doesn't. Yeah, yeah, it's everywhere, and it's everywhere because it's, it's such a you know persistent mythology has become persistent. Mm. You know, yeah. and people like them; they're fun. They take them everywhere. You know, and people move. Yeah, also absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, people oh. carry mythology for or folklore from one part of the country to another, and yeah, because mm. I yeah. think Arthur's see, Arthur's footprint is in like a curse. I yes. think trying to remember which one it's in has been one of them. But yeah, so straight up to Edinburgh on that one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it all fits. Yes. So yeah. um, we, we we talked a little bit about the chaos. How mm. did you I I used to find reading books with a lot of chaos in them as a child. I used to find them quite stressful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I think there's parts of it that are really funny, but I'm also like, I, I cringe very easily and I don't really like cringe comedy. <laughs> Gets, mm. Yeah, it's I don't know whether it's a neurodiverse thing or whatever, but I just find like, <gasps> this is all too much. And now I want to yep. run away and hide. I can't cope yeah. with it. And all these all these people are having things that ha- happen to them that aren't nice as well. I think that's another thing. It's the understanding of that is really difficult. Like yeah. why are they, why why are people having things thrown at them? That's not kind, you know. Yeah, I, I understand that completely. So, mm. so I think there's there's that very kind of a very tight, a very thin line between the Carrie, you know, Stephen King's Carrie mm-hmm. and the Amityville Horror and that stuff that you you were mentioning, poltergeisty stuff. Yeah, and the kind of um, Inez bit. Uh, oh no, we've done this wish totally wrong and now we're yes. gonna stay away from our home until sunset and the our wish is gonna vanish and so that our you know the our family are gonna recognize us rather than going go away extreme extremely beautiful children we don't know who you are that, <laughs> the, <laughs> that that sort of it's a very thin line and and i'm mm-hmm. i i kind of feel that within this book uh it goes a little bit more on the horror side yeah than the comedy side yeah yeah and I think there's elements on there's elements on both sides as well because there's a there's a bit where the kids sort of realize that the bucket is there Mm. and so they start communicating with it and it's not a kind of spooky but they get it they it does a whole load of things to show that it's there Mm. and they feel really excessive it's like, mm-hmm. and then they get the they get all the dolls to line up in a row, and all the dolls are waving, and then and then it makes all the furniture fly around the room. And obviously, again, the, the sort of callback to horror movies is there, but yeah, it does all feel like a bit much. And mm. I think that's also when the adults come in, and the adults obviously panic because that's what adults do in these books, you know. But yeah, it, 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 yeah, I, I I think I think the scene that you described earlier with the tram lines, actually, that one was one that I found quite frightening in when you realize that there isn't any control yeah Bogart is out of control that's what mm. it is it's not just it, it is being mischievous but it isn't able to understand the difference between yeah mischief and chaos and an actual ill intent because it's not it's and, and i think that's it as well there's no it doesn't it doesn't have the same she, she does a really good job of conveying the fact that it doesn't have the same emotional yes. engagement that we do that we do and so it doesn't understand things and it does things. And the other thing that I found quite creepy was the fact that it goes to sleep after it's done things. So it can't be accountable mm. because it's gone to sleep. So something a bit weird will happen or, or disruptive or, you know, again, sort of escalation as things go along. And some of the things are lovely and some of the things are not lovely. But afterwards, the boggart will just disappear for a bit. Yeah. So they can't signal that they've found a thing that it's done very beautiful and moving or that what it's done is disruptive and frightening. There's just nothing. Mm. And that, I yeah, I found that quite an eerie moment and or moments in the book yeah. because it does it repeatedly. And even when Tom says to them, the boggart goes to sleep after it's done something, it, it doesn't help. <laughs> it no, doesn't help at all. <laughs> No, and it's not um, like at the end of Hobbity Dick, you feel I felt empathy for the Hob, mm-hmm. and the Hob chooses at the end of Hobbity Dick. There's a point where this is kind of another Harry Potter thing, where Hobbity Dick chooses. He gets three choices. There's clothes, one type of clothing which means that he's free. He can Mm -hmm. go out into the world and and do what he wants to do. There's another type of clothing, which means he goes into like fairyland. So in essence, he dies, leaves the kind of our shared world. And there's a third choice he gets, which is to take a broom. And then if he takes the broom, that means he stays in the the home because he's attached Mm. to house he's not attached to a family 
And at the end, it's like, well, Hobbity Dick's really tired. And so he makes this choice and he goes into fairyland. Spoilers. Um, and and that's kind of, I felt empathy then for Hobbity Dick because he's he's guarded his, the place that he's tied to. And he's been a good mm -hmm. and faithful servant to that place. But I don't feel that at all with the Boggart. At no. all. no. There's yeah. nothing human. Mm. There's no, mm. there isn't any way of feeling any empathy mm. for him because yeah. he is, there's nothing human about him. No. Yeah. And, and that's totally elemental. Mm. And, and that, I think again, you know, that, uh, that very, very early section where the laird passes and, mm. and his, his dog passes underscores that as well because the boggart has been causing trouble and has been looking forward to causing trouble and the boggart wakes up the next morning and the boggart doesn't understand what's mm. happened and the boggart does some disruptive stuff and yeah, it throws pens around and, and throws things throws things around so of course the people who then find this this old old man then also see you know yeah that all the pans are on the floor and there's all this all this sort of other stuff that's happened and again i think that you know that feels very if a person did that, you'd think that it was grief or anger or mm. something else, something more sinister, maybe a burglary or something. And it, but it sets the tone for this this just incomprehension that this creature has. And I think it's very well described as well when mm. when Susan Cooper is writing as the boggart and the boggart does this and then it does that and then it thinks about it thinks about the mischief that it will cause and it feels excitement mm. and then it does this and then it does that and then again there's no it it never feels remorse it never feels it never feels anything other than kind of glee, mm. glee or frustrate frustration that people aren't paying attention to its tricks or glee that its tricks have worked there that's it there's yeah. nothing there's nothing else and even even when people are affected by the things that it does again uh, and this goes back to the fact that it then goes to sleep it doesn't understand accountability like mm. it doesn't understand it doesn't understand why it's ended up in a different part of the world but it doesn't even really understand it's in a different part of the world it's just in a different place you know it doesn't belong to the children either yeah. which is another thing that you might expect in a story like this that they would you know that they would somehow kind of bond with it and there are, there are instances throughout the book where all three children address the boggart and it doesn't take any notice at all mm. you know they'll say things like boggart please don't please don't do anything naughty or i think i think they say yeah please don't please i think it is that actually please don't do anything naughty and it's just like why are you stopping me from doing tricks mm. and it isn't yeah and that's it and it and that feels again really there's a real kind of i think again looking at the sort of horror movies that had just come out that's that's also something that is often interpreted as malevolent. Mm. Different reading of this, it would be an evil poltergeist that's causing escalating violence and and disruption. Um, and it needs to be again, as the as the as the mm. as the baddie thinks, you know, it needs to be. Well, he doesn't he doesn't actually know about the pocket, but you know, needs to be somehow cast out or exercised or all these callbacks to these other things that are happening at the same time. It really struck me because I thought none of the things that she's she seems to be drawing from here are things that children reading the Boggart should be watching, you know. And that's interesting. Is she assuming that these children have or these readers have no knowledge, or is she mm. assuming that there is a contingency of adult readers who'll be reading her books, thinking, "Oh, that's really similar to what happens in Poltergeist." I think or, that's such so. an interesting question. Because I read this, um, it would have been when I was in my very early years of teaching. So I qualified mm. as a teacher in 1993. So I was probably reading this like, I don't know, three or four years later. Mm. And it undercuts so much everything that you expect from a children's book. If you've read classic yeah. intrusion fantasies, mm -hmm. it's not an intrusion fantasy because the boggart lives in our world it kind of it intrudes from the castle but it's not it's not really an intrusion fantasy but it's like the kind of the elemental world of the castle and the modern world and as you say that the way that the bugger has no comprehension 
of modernity mm. in the modern world mm. at all. But there's also everything that you would expect of like there being the, the way that you might expect the children working together to to manage the boggart. Yes. And like and finding some kind of magical book or something and being able to cast it out themselves. And it doesn't work that way. Yeah. No. And I just love the way that Susan Cooper kind of pulls the rug out from under our feet every yeah. time. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd still think that if I'd been reading this as a nine year old, I would have been really scared. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is I mean, again, the cover that I've got, which is both it's oh, lovely, yeah. but it is eerie. It's beautiful, this, yeah. It is, it is, it's really, really pretty. Um, and it's got this lovely kind of deep teal mm. on the back of it as well. But I think, yeah, it's these children look very inquiry, but they are pointing to a mist covered castle in the, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's in my book, my copy. There's like I'm Emily and her brother, and they're in front of a computer. Yeah. With an image of Castle Stalker on it, and it, with a cat. Obviously, it's a black cat, and a worried-looking adult <laughs> next to. Yes. Them. Yeah. 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 Who I, I presume is mum. Who presumably yes. Yeah, and I I think the because uh, the cat's always really scared of it when it's in the room as well, isn't it? That's right, because again, Susan Cooper rather obviously preferring dogs to cats in another. It, it's it's noticeable. We've noticed this. Yeah, but, I don't uh, judge. I don't. No, judge. well, I do a little I do. bit. I judge <laughs> strongly, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yes, uh, but no, I, yeah, it's, it's a very striking. But I mean, that one looks even more like a horror movie than. Yes, it does. This one looks like an inquiring inquiring but eerie children's story with probably a ghost in it, whereas I think yours looks like there's going to be. Yeah, you can almost see Television again, it's it's the poltergeist thing of of the television. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm also reminded of there's there's an amazing scene in Poltergeist where um, the exorcists roll in. And uh, the exes and they they're downstairs and they they're sort of saying you know what you know what you know can you sort of describe what's happening, and um, I think it's the uh, uh, the female lead says I think it's probably best if you just show you if if we just show you, and they're walking up the stairs and one of the guys is saying oh yeah well, you know we saw a book fall off the stage once you know it was very exciting and you know manifestations blah 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 and then she opens the door and the entire room is just spinning sort of, yeah spinning yes. around the entire room. <laughs> <laughs> but it does it does feel a bit like that with uh with what's going on yeah but you know this i think i think the other thing is you know you you sort of said this earlier we're always trying to find a way of, of understanding and that you expect the children to find a way of understanding and it's not actually there and it's brought home that there isn't not only isn't there a, there isn't not only is there not a way of doing it but why should there be mm. It's just this, yeah. It's an element. It's an elemental, right? It doesn't. It doesn't logically make sense to us, and we're constantly trying to comprehend it. And quite a lot of that happens in the book, and that's what causes the issue as well. People trying to understand it is what causes trouble. It's when they say, "You know what? We think it. We think it needs to do this. We're going to do this," and they make a decision which is nothing to do with what the bogart's doing for the bogart's own good and theirs, <laughs> and then they implement it. And, you know, obviously that's the conclusion of the book, but there isn't any kind of, we think the Boggart would be happier doing this rather than that. It's like, no, we're going to do this because mm. we need to do this. Otherwise everything's going to just, Toronto is going to be destroyed. Yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> We've got to not allow Toronto to explode. Yeah. Which is, you know, reasonable. I think it's reasonable. Yeah. yeah. It's time for book two, everyone. So, the book that you chose, you've already mentioned it was it's Al McNichol, who yes. oh my gosh, so amazing. Um so you you chose Like a Charm. Yes. Which I obviously it's a, a newer book. We've both got the same yeah. Bobby with um, uh Grace Friars Bobby. Grace Friars Bobby, there we go. Yeah. Um would you please describe the plot for us? Okay. So it is about a um, 
I think Ramya is 11 or 12 mm. in this book because I also have the sequel, which is the one that I actually read more recently. Um, so Ramya is um, fairly typical. Uh, she is a student at the local school. Um, she's having trouble making friends, but she makes a friend, which is a, a sort of typical thing in an Al McNichol book, that there'll be mm. a friend, uh, but who is a very close friend. Um, and she starts to realise that things around her aren't as they seem. And this is also tied up with her... Um, she already knows at the beginning of the story that she's dyspraxic, but it's tied up with her hair. Yeah. <laughs> but it's tied up with a sort of growing understanding of not only what that means, but what it means in the rest of the world. Mm. And as she starts to discover that Edinburgh, um, where she lives, is full of this very magical fae world uh, where where statues come to life and where um, vampires work in bookshops uh, they're, they're, they're good it's okay um, and when she as she starts to discover all these different friends so she sort of starts to notice the differences among, amongst other people as well as herself mm. um, and that's kind of the story obviously that's a sort of top level reading of it mm. I think but I think after having read the other ones um they're very, very layered stories and they're meant to be read like that. And they're meant to be, I mean, she's a brilliant, brilliant author. Mm. Um, and her books are very clearly read both as a bit of an instructional guide on how to be neurodiverse. Um, but I think this one, this one in particular is very much about, and have a look at the rest of the world as well, because yes. you'll start to notice things that you might not have seen before and you might not feel as alone as a result. And yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, this is the first book I've ever read with a character who is canonically, yeah, canonically dyspraxic. So, like, when I first watched Doctor Who, like with uh, the Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor and Ryan, the character in mm. um, one of the the uh, companions who was dyspraxic and and him trying to learn to ride a bike. And I burst into tears while I was watching yeah. it because like, oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. I have never seen that. And the frustration of like, why can I not do this totally ordinary thing? And so like, yeah, Romeo's clearly an intelligent girl, but she has to go to special lessons because there are things that, that, that she struggles with as part, but the special lessons aren't really that special because they don't particularly help her yes and that and kind of, of catch-all neurodiversity yeah written, written by non-neurodiverse people which there's there's quite a lot of stuff in Elle McNichol's books about educators there's a yes. lot to kind of spark and I'll, I'll kind of go back to that because there's a uh, my bursting into tears moment is actually from a kind of spark um, but this one in particular, it's very sort of, oh God, we've seen these lesson plans. I, yeah. you know, I think both of us as educators, we've both been in staff meetings or away days when people have said, this is what we're going to do to cover neurodiverse it's, people. And this is how to deal with children with these very, very different wide, wide and often conflicting needs. Do this, do this yes. one thing. And that's accessibility sense. we're going to yeah. be accessible and you think good grief you, you know everybody from you know that person over there who's got hearing impairment to yes you know to those those people who can't you know yeah <laughs> don't want to be in this room right now yeah yeah <laughs> chronic anxiety deafness uh, someone who uses mobility aids yeah just do that one thing just, it's just do it all and it, they really feel like that and Ramia's frustration is is you know and it's particularly it's underscored again it, it's been a while on this one but it's underscored by the teachers basically saying why don't you try harder at your special lessons which yes. is I'm laughing as a as a stress reaction you know again yeah and the uh, the oh. thing is that the teacher is not 
a bad person. No. He's not a baddie. He's No. He he just doesn't get it. It's yeah. 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 And, and again, I, you know, it's just right. yeah. Why it, are you sitting on top of the bike shed eating your lunch rather than trying to be normal? It's yeah. Yes, and I think that's. I mean, that's the other. That's the other sort of thing about the lessons is they're not lessons to teach you how to understand who you are. They're lessons to teach you how to be normal, yeah, and fit in, and how to. And with the ultimate aim of you won't have to have your special lessons in your special class that everybody else knows that you're having or doing as well. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so fortunately, Remy starts to discover that there are things in Edinburgh. Um, that aren't what they seem and mm. she starts to see things and I think what I've liked about Elle McNichol's more recent writing is that she's basically said look I've written and am writing about neurodiverse people in my books but that doesn't have to be the actual topic mm. because I'm not again like that teacher I'm not trying to make people be neurotypical and all of these people can have adventures and all of these people can do mm. things and actually I think it's kind of cool I think folklore is kind of cool and so she starts to sort of integrate this into like a charm and like a curse in a way that she hasn't in the previous two books the the, the middle one is um is more sort of science fictional and is yeah. sort of AI and the first one is very straightforward um you know discussion of of um asd and um and autism in in various different forms but these ones are one of the things that i think is really interesting is that when ramia starts to see things she second guesses herself because she's so used to being told that she's special that she's like but now i'm seeing great fries bobby come to life <laughs> this is yeah yeah. <laughs> and I really, I really like that. And I think again, they're they're both very they're both very charming books in that way. Because as this world starts to, you know, as as this world starts to unravel and ravel itself in different ways around her, she starts to come to terms with different things about herself. And the second one is interesting in the the sort of central message of this is is also you are dyspraxic. That's not going to magically go away mm. either. You're still going to have to count going down steps in order to get to the bottom of them because otherwise you're going to fall. And that's a major and, and that's a major issue when she's trying to get to see, you know, she's she's trying to she's trying to reach a baddie and and she can't. But it's also counterpoised by the central villain, mm. um, who's Portia, is that right? Mm. Yes, um, because she's also being weirdly gaslit by people, yeah. in, again, in a slightly different way. And she's had this very odd experience where she was at what sounds like an absolutely, oh, God, <laughs> again, what sounds like an absolutely horrendous middle-class party Yes, parents are hosting. And it, again, just feels like, all of those parties that I remember when I was a kid where you just both wanted to be hanging around the adults, but at the same time, you were just terrified that you were going to say something weird or do something Someone's wrong. Someone's going to notice you. <laughs> Someone's going to notice you. And I think I think that's a very, again, I, I, I would assume that's quite a sort of typical thing for most children to feel. It's like, yeah, they mm. want to be, they absolutely don't at the same time. But this woman comes in and she starts to talk to people and she is weirdly persuasive in a way that Ramya is unnerved by and then Portia tries to persuade her to do something and she's not interested and and just sort of dismisses it and then as a result of this starts to become quite alienated from her family yes stops seeing her grandfather who she's incredibly fond of and her family also seem to change their sort of attitude towards both themselves and each other as a result. And that I think the sort of sinister element of this is that it's not, it happened quite a while ago. Mm. This isn't something that sort of happened straight away again. My yeah, she, she's a little girl. She's about five right. or six yeah. in mm. the first chapter, isn't she? Where, where the mm. horrible drinks party in London is happening. 
yeah in the, in the second chapter is when they've they've now moved to edinburgh that's right yeah and yeah. so um and the, the parents are some kind of media celebs yes that's right yeah they're on the telly aren't they there is yeah. really, really awkward news announcers and yeah it's a right it's a bit, a bit of an odd one that one but yeah i think el, el mcnichol is good at doing different types of of families actually yeah all, all three families in all three books and i'm counting these as, as one book are alternately sort of goodies baddies in the, mm. in the middle and a bit of everything and yeah, these guys are not the good guys. <laughs> they're, just, no. they're just vapid as well. Again, there's that sort of, I think certainly my experience of being neurodiverse is that often I feel incredibly over-perceptive of things mm. and sort of notice the ridiculousness of other people quite a lot, In again, in a way that I know is not appropriate to yeah. comment on. And her family feel like that. It feels like they're very sort of turned up to 11 in there. Do, they're doing something really normal in a really weird way it's very yeah. difficult to put your finger on what it is but they just but yeah. also there's the extended family and the way that yes. the kind of the way that this ability that that some members of the family have to see through yes glamour of of these mm-hmm. um uh malevolent magical beings like portia and mm. the way that some of them don't. So, but you've also got like her cousin Marley, who desperately wants to be able to to see through, and and can't. And mm. it's it, um, and so like what the the ability that that Ramya has is both special, but alienating, and it's sort of like yeah, but it's not it's not just a metaphor for her neurodiversity, which mm-hmm. I really like. It's like yeah. the neurodiversity is there, but also there's this, she doesn't have, it's not like in Percy Jackson where his neurodiversity turns out to be a superpower. You know, it's not, that's not what it is. It's like, it. it's just these two aspects, two aspects of her that are kind of almost counteract each other sometimes yeah, yeah. And yeah. i really like that I, I think it's like well both of these things are actually a problem yep yeah they're also just who i am and i yeah gonna have yeah. to work it out yeah absolutely yeah and they're very and again they're very human I and mean, you know how all of all of our characters feel like they feel like people they've got these struggles with things but they've also got these real ups as well you know Mm. when they when they see things that they love or experience things there's a real kind of high and um there's a bit later in the book which again I'm I'm not I'm not going to give away um where she sees some fake creatures and she's absolutely entranced by them she Mm. just thinks they're amazing and everyone else thinks they're really scary (laughs) yeah and and her friend Marley is just kind of creeped out by them and is just like, oh, they're so odd. You know, what is up with these with these fey creatures? And she's just like, oh my goodness, you know, they're they're wonderful because they're so weird. Um and I think, yeah, that again feels very kind of it feels very rounded, you know, it's okay for somebody, cats and dogs, right? It's okay yeah. for somebody to like cats more than dogs and, you know, and it feels a bit like that. Um, and I think her, I mean, this the, the first of the two books is very much about her sort of realisation of, of who she is. And then the second book is very much about her working out what that means. Mm. And her counterpart, uh, my best friend um, Marley is. I'm really hoping I've got the right guy because there's two of them. I said I was really. I said I was really bad at names, even <laughs> worse than usual. Um, but her counterpart has a, has a sort of again. This is at the very beginning of like a curse, where he's a bit annoyed about the fact that she's got on the bandwagon of being the heroine. Mm. Um, and he's a bit kind of like, God, I'm really normal. And then he feels guilty because he's like, well, I can fit in and I don't have 
but you know i don't have as many issues but also i can't bloody fly <laughs> i don't really <laughs> want to fly. i don't want to fly yeah. i don't want to fly because i'm scared of it but at the same time gosh she's being really annoying <laughs> And it, it just, that. you know, it just felt this this sort of really lovely little monologue by him, which again just feels so. It feels again like the sort of it feels a little bit adult mm. for for kind of kids who are sort of hitting that age, but at the same time, it isn't unrealistic to to feel that sort of up and down jealousy, and also yeah. the sort of guilt about feeling feeling guilty that somebody else has something that does mark them out even if it isn't actually great for them you know yeah but I I, yeah I I really like I mean one of the things I really enjoy is um that the kind of books a lot of the books that were around young adult books in particular in like the 2000s very much were about oh here is this totally plain Jane heroine um who's totally totally normal but it turns out that actually she's a chosen one of some kind and um and this kind of plain janeness just goes somehow so i'm yep. thinking about like yep. um cassandra clare books um, yeah, I, yeah i was gonna say and twilight books do this as well yeah and divergent and, those kind of books and I'm sure that you've even talked about this before. It's often seen as a redeeming character, that a characteristic that the heroine is clumsy. Yeah. 